Before we start the show, I just wanted to say that I am looking for a few Southampton fans who were at the 1976 FA Cup final against Manchester United. If you or someone you know was there, I would love to talk to you about that experience. You can get in touch with me on Twitter, at SFCDELL underscore IVERY, or you can email me at SouthamptonDelivery at gmail.com. I appreciate your help. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Southampton Delivery Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the Southampton Football Club and all of the SFC fans. I, I would wish you all a, a good morning or a good afternoon or a good evening. Uh, but, but I'm not going to, because this is, this has not been good. This has not been a good week for the Southampton football club. And judging from, uh, the, the language that is being used on Twitter, uh, I would agree that your, your sentiments are pretty much with mine in a week where we played Swansea away and West Ham at home, uh, where we should have come away with six points. We failed to gain a single point. Uh, in a transfer window where we needed a striker and a central defender, we got a striker and a goalkeeper. And at a time in a season when the club was in Europe and had a chance to really make another run towards the top of the table and continue to improve, the club has seemingly fallen backwards. So things aren't going uh, the way we would have hoped, but uh, nonetheless, we thank you all for, for joining us, uh, and we appreciate that you are here with us to kind of work through this, and maybe this will be um, a little cathartic uh, for us all. So to help make sense of all of this, we have Luke Osman on the show. He's the co-editor of Reed Southampton. You can follow him at Luke Osman RS. You can also follow the Reed Southampton page on Twitter at Reed Southampton. Um, so Luke, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, no. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about you and about what goes on at, at Reed Southampton? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, Reed Southampton is a site that basically contains every single little bit of Saints news there is. It includes a lot of feature pieces, um, so opinions from fans like myself. It includes all of the latest transfer news and rumours from around of, um, around the globe. And it contains just uh, news quotes from the from the players within, and you know we we do we occasionally do the um the predicted lineups and the match ratings from the weeks and the matches that are played. So yeah, really um the sites the sites got everything. All right, all right, and people can can get in touch with with you or with uh, the site itself um, on Twitter at Luke Osman RS and then also at Reed Southampton. So yeah, that's correct. All right, all right. Um, so if you don't mind, you want to go ahead and get started with uh, just the end of the transfer window and, and some team news before we get into the to the matches of last week? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so Saints on the 31st of January, late on after the um, after the disappointing game at Swansea, we announced the signing of Manolo Gabbiadini. But um, prior to that, at two o'clock, we announced the signing of young Nice goalkeeper Mue Hassan. He hasn't actually 
played a game or been in a matchday squad since around about the October time. And, it, you know, it, it was a bit it was a bit of a strange one. The, the news of Hassan being linked with Saints came came about quite suddenly, only a couple of days before. And that seems to be quite a recurring pattern with the signings, um, obviously disregarding Gabbiadini because that was quite a well-publicised one. But Hassan, he, he was given a chance at Nice under Claude Puel. But after a couple of minor errors in his um, last season at the club, Puel opted to give young Johan Cardinal a chance in goal. But um thing is, and unfortunately for Hassan, Cardinal proved to be a very, very good goalkeeper. And since Puel's exit, Hassan has just slipped down the pecking order. A wrist injury in October didn't help him, but he was third-choice goalkeeper at Nice. And it was very, very clear that he wasn't going to get back into the um, back into the squad after the signing of Walter Benitez. So it then emerged as well that Claude Well in a press conference that backup goalkeeper Alex McCarthy is to be out for two months after unknown surgery and hamstring problem. So, and it was clear that Harry Lewis isn't quite ready, and Stuart Taylor isn't really hasn't really been brought in to act as a backup. So we've signed Mbappe Hassan. But whether he will actually play as a backup or not, I'm not so sure. Because Puel did mention that, you know, he'd, he'd see if the fans could could look at his quality, which suggests to me that he will play. However, we don't have any other cup game or midweek fixtures to, to have a need to rotate Fraser Forster. Because, you know, we, we've only got 14 Premier League games left and we've just got the cup final. So that tells me that he might very well be looking to give Hassan that chance um, and potentially drop Forster. And for me, that might not be such a bad idea, given given his recent performances. But um, yes, Manolo Gabbiadini then signed after the Swansea match. And it, he's an interesting player, and it was an interesting signing. There was a lot of talk about it throughout the whole the whole of January, really. And, uh, you know, for £14 million, it's a lot of money, uh, with, a, with a fee, fee rising up to about £17 million. However, we, we signed him after he fell out of favour at Napoli, quite similar to the Hassan situation. He he doesn't really fit Maurizio Sarri's system at Napoli, and they emerged with four, four strikers, uh, with Gabbiadini included in that. The problem for him was that he slipped so far down the pecking order that he was, in fact, the fourth choice. They signed uh, Leonardo Pavoletti from, I think it was Genoa, this month, uh, and he suits Sarri's style a little bit more than Gabbiadini does. And with Dries Mertens' emergence as a centre-forward and his flourishing there, along with Eric Millick coming back from his injury, it was quite clear that Gabbiadini wasn't going to get a chance. And it's clear to see that Claude Puel wanted to bring in an attacker in, in January. And, you know, I'm, I'm very, very grateful that he did because the, the finish in this season has been awful. But we signed Gabbiadini. He can, he can play all across the front three. And I think that our attacking options look a lot better with him in the squad. I think he's... He's added a lot more quality. He's added a bit more flair and maybe even a bit more fight. I think we saw, even again in, in the game against West Ham, in his, his first ever game in English football, he looked like he wanted it more than anyone else on that pitch. And with his first shot, he scored a very, very good goal. So already he sort of made an impression on the fans. But of course, he's going to have to live up to his price tag. But I think with a bit of belief and a bit of consistent game time, he will be OK. People, people vented some concerns about his goal-scoring record. But in fact, this season in the Serie A, he scored he scored three goals. So obviously, people were going to have their have their qualms, and they were going to have their concerns about whether he could actually score goals in the Premier League and live up to his expectations. But in fact, due to the sort of lack of game time at Napoli, 
the goals he scored, his record was one every 170 minutes, which is about a goal every two games. And for me, that's a really, really impressive stat, in fact, given the, you know, the, the, the failure to suit Sarri's system and it, probably his unhappiness in Naples at not getting the sufficient game time. But yeah, he can play all across the front three. He's got, he's got age on his side. He's, he's got an absolute cannon of a left foot, as we did see it from his goal against West Ham. Absolutely. And on the whole, I think that I think that it's a it's a good signing for us. As he was falling down the pecking order um, in Italy, do you attribute that simply to uh, the fact that he didn't quite fit the system, or was there something else you think that maybe should I be skeptical, or should I kind of expect him to to kind of kick on after yesterday, um, simply because he's going to be a better fit for us? I think that with every signing comes a risk, and. At a price of 14 million, which by our standards is a hell of a lot of money, it's our second uh, most expensive uh, transfer fee, and it could rise to be our most expensive. I think to be sceptical is normal. I think that, you know, he has got a lot to prove, but I think he knows that himself, and he's got a lot to prove to himself. He, he's, he's voiced many a time say, saying that he's it is his dream to play in the Premier League, and he does want to impress, and he wants to... He's got his heart on improving and developing with Southampton. And I do actually have a, a strong belief that that is exactly what he'll do. I think that Claude Puel has brought him in purely based on the versatility to, to suit on to suit his system, but to play with quality in each position. For example, he was very, very good coming off the right-hand side for both Sampdoria and Napoli when Rafa Benitez was there due to his left foot cutting inside and finding a little space in between the lines. Right. But he's also quite a good striker. Where do you see his his positioning for us? Do you think he's go, do you think Claude Perot will go with kind of a more fluid front three, or do you think they will kind of put Gabbiadini up at the top and let kind of Redmond and you know maybe uh, Rodriguez kind of run off of him? Or what do you, what do you what do you think Puel's plan for him is? I think it's quite it's quite hard to say because it depends on the formation for me. If we play the four three three that we have been playing. It seemed a little bit more rigid than what we were using earlier on in the season with the diamond formation. With the diamond, you know, it felt as though anyone could play anywhere in and amongst that front three. And it made it unpredictable for defenders. For example, one minute Nathan Redmond would be coming deep centrally to receive the ball, but the next minute he'd be out wide on the right hand side, getting getting into a good position to take on his fullback. So there is a certain fluidity to that. However, I think that predominantly Puel has brought him in to be a striker. I think that it was clear to see with Charlie Austin's injury and the misfiring ways of our striker that that is what we needed. But I think that predominantly he will be playing him up front as a lone striker in this 4-3-3 with two wingers either side of him. But I think that Puel will take a lot of heart knowing that he has, he has the capability to play in a variety of different positions. All right, yeah, and that's especially good news, I think, uh, when Austin comes back and is fit, and then we have you know multiple people who can go up there and play that spot, and I and I, I do hope we see more more of what we saw yesterday from him because I I think he was one of the few kind of bright spots of yesterday's match against West Ham. For sure, I, I agree with that. I think that in all honesty, he was by far and away our best player, and I, I simply I wouldn't even consider that because of the goal. I think uh, more than anyone else in our team. Um, and I was a little surprised to see somebody come over from Italy and, and kind of be able to uh, 
because uh, everybody talks about the Premier League being so much more physical than some of the other leagues. And so I was kind of I wasn't sure if he was going to be able to cope with it, but he just didn't seem to cope with it. He seemed to kind of excel and just and just go. And it was great to. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I um, I had the concern as well, because obviously for for a guy who is six foot one, he's not particularly the most physically gifted. He's not he's not um noticeably fast and he's not noticeably strong. And he did get he did get bulked off the ball maybe once early on. But I think that overall, it was it was it was the attitude towards the game that impressed me. I mean, obviously playing against West Ham and you you know they've got some big boys on their team. He had to put himself about, but he did that with aggression and with determination, and that's what set him apart from a lot of the team for me. And that's why I think that he was more of a threat to West Ham in a different sense to how they would have expected. And especially with only you know the short window of time that he came in and kind of fit in with the team and then was immediately kind of thrown into the, the starting lineup. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he's only he's only had one or two training sessions. And I've got to admit, I was very, very surprised to see to see Gabbiadini start. I was, you know, and judging by Claude Puel's press conference, he wasn't sure whether he'd be ready. So to, to have seen him play the full 90 minutes, it was surprising, but it was encouraging to see because there was there was talk out in Italy of him maybe lacking the the capacity to play in that full 90 minutes but perhaps again that was down to Sari's system perhaps Puel's system will suit Gabbiadini further because there was a lot of talk about him having quite bad muscle fatigue and that could that could have been a bit costly in Premier League games however I think it is definitely encouraging to see he he played that full 90 minutes and he made an impression yeah and I, I guess the good news for us now is that with only the cup final and the rest of the Premier League schedule to go He's got, for the most part, seven, six or seven days between matches moving forward. So hopefully that's enough time to recover and he can stay fit for the remainder of the season. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I think that that is, it's kind of, in a way, it's an unwanted positive because obviously we would have preferred to have progressed in the Europa League and yes, yes, y- you know, and stuff like that. But as you said at the end of the day, it will be helpful to give him that full rest, and it's going to feel a bit more of a normal season for him now because. Out in Italy as well, there are several, you know, there are several midweek fixtures, but I think that can also be said about a lot of the squad. There's no real need now to rotate. You can make a couple of changes here and there, but there's no need now for the wholesale changes. And I think that that's something that Puel does need to keep in mind. And with the kind of end of the transfer window having come midweek, what do you what do you think overall about our transfer business? I think across the board, people kind of see the the, the hole we didn't fill. But how are you? How do you, how do you look? How would you rate the overall transfer window? It's very very difficult. Um, I think that there's been a bit of an imbalance because in the summer, I reckon that the board looked at, for example, our striking options, and saw quantity instead of quality. Because you know when you look at it, you think, you know, we got four strikers there, and in the diamond formation initially, we you know that's. That's two playing and then two rested and then two playing and then the other two rested again. And that looks okay. But the quality isn't there and a lot of them are injury prone. So it was clear to see that our defence was then stronger than our attack at the start of the season. So we had to balance that out in January. And we did so in that sense by signing Manolo Gabbiadini to add quality to the attacking line. Um, But then we arrive in January with 11 days to go and we've sold our captain who is you know who is normally a mainstay in the team as our central defender and 
it was unfortunate to see Virgil van Dijk injured, and now it's clear that he's ruled out for three months. But then again, that's when I say that we've got a, now we've got a better attack than we have a defence. There's an imbalance, and we've not really filled it. I don't think this the summer window and the and the January window have really been a success. I think that obviously. Looking at it now, with hindsight, perhaps the Hassan signing was an intelligent move with McCarthy out for two months. But at the end of the day, it wasn't the priority. I think that I'd have rather signed a defender this month than a striker. But that isn't any that isn't to say that we didn't need a striker, because I am very, very happy that Gabbiadini's here. So if I had to rate the transfer window, I think I'd actually have to give it a five. It, it's not... It's difficult, right? Because if, say it was, if we had signed... At least one centre back on a permanent deal, I'd have probably given it an eight or a nine. Right. But with with the w- without a centre back, I don't really see how this season we're going to progress unless you know we do delve into the free transfer market. To me, that that always seems like kind of a, a risk in, in 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 taking on a player like that, whether it be because they're they're I I would see it as they're they're out of favor or they're out of a contract for a for a reason whether it be uh, the wage demands or whether it be you know whatever it is and so i I'm, I'm a little worried about going there but i definitely think we need to fill that hole at center back yeah yeah i, I completely agree with you i think that it is always a risk and it, you know as you said there is a reason why they are available and without a contract and there's only really a few central defenders that's that stand out as being recognisable, in all honesty. There's Chris Samba, who used to play for Blackburn and QPR, but to be fair, you don't really want a Premier League club going anywhere near him. Um, you've got Felipe Mexes, who apparently, according to Demarcio, uh, according to a report from them today, we did make an approach for, but we were unconvinced about his physical condition. And I, I do, you know, I can, I can fully understand that, given the fact that he's 34 years old and he looked like he was struggling a bit for AC Milan. Hence their lack of urgency to really keep hold of him. Right. And then you've got Martin Caceres, who actually does seem to be a genuine target for us. Um, he was due to sign for AC Milan. Everything had gone through pretty well. He'd arrived there for a medical. He passed his medical, which is probably quite positive, given the fact that he's got a reputation for being quite injury prone. So it sounds like his fitness is OK. But he actually rejected the terms based on a couple of um, disagreements with their wage demands. But it is understood by Demarcio that he's favouring a move to English football. And the two sides mentioned were Southampton and Sunderland. Now, I appreciate we're not doing too well, but I think if you're a foreign player and you want to choose between Southampton and Sunderland, it can only be one team. Right. So it does look like it could it could go through. A couple of little sources have said that he's set for Southampton and he's set to join. But, you know, the reliability and the credibility of that is sort of yet to be seen. However, at the end of the day, we need a bit of quality. We need an experienced head at the back. And I think that Caceres could definitely be a, a positive signing. All right. Yeah, I did see some some chat uh, on him or regarding him on Twitter. And and that was one of the things I'm, I wanted to ask you. So I'm, I appreciate you bringing it up. Um and I, you know, I saw a couple little things. People saying like, "Oh, they'll probably play a few games and get injured based on his history," you know. And and the wage demands kind of also got me thinking: if he got the demands that he was looking for, I'm not sure if if we even know what they are. But where would that kind of put him in terms of our other defenders? Would he is he asking for significantly more money, or is it just that uh, the entire team's 
just don't have the amount of money that the Premier League teams do. It's it's a, it's a really tricky one because I suppose, in all honesty, we'll never we'll never really know how much a player is on, or how or how much a club is offering to them. By the sounds of it, AC Milan were a bit sceptical on Caceres, and I think that was the noticeable thing. They didn't really want to pay him too much, purely based on the injury record. They sort of regarded him as a short-term fix. But again, I suppose that is what free agents are. That is what these players without contracts are. They, they, they are the ones that have got to prove their worth and in some cases put themselves in the shop window. I don't think that Caceres would be on an obscene amount of money if we were going for him. At Southampton, we've got a clear wage structure and I couldn't see us breaking that simply for a free agent. I think that Caceres will need to play for a half-decent side. And I was quite surprised that he did, you know, he did turn away in um, AC Milan. But if it is to pursue an ambition of playing in the Premier League, and that is understandable, then it looks as though we're the location for him. And touching upon where he'd sort of fit in amongst our defenders, I think that in all honesty, as much as I think that Stevens does have a bright future, and I think that I still think that Gardos is a bit of an unknown quantity. We've never properly seen him. I'd feel a lot more comfortable with Caceres and Yoshida at the back than I would with Stevens and Yoshida or Gardos and Yoshida. Do you think Stevens is still at that that uh, age where maybe he needs to go on loan for a year and try to get you know maybe some championship games in, or do you think he is ready to kind of make that step? And and where how does he do that unless we give him the time? It's it's very very difficult with Stevens. It's a it's a weird situation. He's about twenty two, twenty three years old, and he has had. Some loan spells. He went to Swindon a few years back. I think they were in League Two, maybe League One. I'm not too sure. Um, and he impressed there. He went out on loan with Jordan Turnbull, another young academy graduate here who's now playing for Coventry. And he, he played well. But recently he had a loan spell at Middlesbrough. And I think that was only last season. And that was a promotion season for Borough. And he didn't really... He, he never really got a game. When he did play, he was playing in defensive midfield, which is a bit of a weird one because, you know, it's, it's very, very clear that he is a central defender. I don't really think that being at 22, 23 years old is the time for loans. And I think that, that we've got a few players like this, like, for example, Lloyd Isgrove. I think that it's time for maybe him to move on. He's 24 years old now. Paolo Gatsaniga is out on loan, but I don't really see him getting any better nor worse. And with Stevens, it's very, very difficult because he is highly rated at Saints. And at the end of the day, he's an under-21 international centre-back. So, you know, he is highly rated. And from what I've seen of him, he's a very, very good defender on the ball. But he struggled big time against Fernando Llorente, against Swansea. And he didn't exactly get the beating of Andy Carroll on Saturday. However, you look back to his Liverpool performance and you can see that he is capable of big things. So I think, although... Yes, you know, first-team football would be the best thing for him, and it's the way to learn. I think I'd be a bit more comfortable with him being, let's say, a fourth-choice centre-back. So let's say Virgil returns, we sign Caceres, then we have Yoshida and Stevens as our backups, even though I am more than comfortable with, with Yoshida starting. I just feel as though Stevens may not be ready to quite make that step up yet. I, I agree with you. I wish, you know, that, that if... If that Liverpool performance is where what Stevens can do, I, I think that's fantastic. But I think that he stepped into the into a big spot and he he performed. And I think 
or at least I know, I was like, well, this must be him. It's, it, I know it's a small sample size, but that's what he can do. And then he just hasn't quite done it the last couple of games, but I would like to see him stick around. And, and you're right. He is a little bit too old for the, uh, the loan spells, but, um, you know, I guess he just has to kind of fight his way into the squad or, and, and, and try to stay there no matter, even when Van Dyke comes back and, and if we sign Caceres or, or not. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it is it is a difficult one because exactly as you said, we can see what he's capable of with that performance against Liverpool. You know, you don't just you don't just slot in and learn that overnight. That you know, that was a that was a really dominant performance. Him and Yoshida were both fantastic. But I think that that kind of thing can be said about a lot of the squad. I've found that we play with a lot more urgency, a lot more focus, more concentration and more desire in the EFL Cup. Because it feels like you know they're fighting for something. With the Premier League, I can't I can't help but feel as though we've accepted mediocrity. And I think that in a way, maybe the players are taking their foot, feet off the gas. And maybe perhaps that's why Gabbiadini looked out of place in the game against West Ham because he looked like he actually wanted to play and he wanted to really make his mark. With Stevens, I suppose at the moment, it's it's very very difficult because he's a young player. He's been chucked in. At the deep end, I know he's had a couple of loan spells and he's an experienced young international, but I, I don't. It's it's very very difficult situation. I think, as you said, it is it's worth keeping him here and it is worth him sticking around, but not yet. He's not quite ready to compete at the level we want to be at. You mentioned the Premier League, maybe taking our foot off the gas. I I I'm I tend to agree with you on that. Um, let's, yeah. let's kind of look back at, at the last week. And I know neither game is particularly, uh, going to be fun to talk about, but we should, uh, look over some of the, uh, some of what happened. So looking back to, to Tuesday night, Swansea, um, we lose two one to a team that I, I at least think we should have gotten three points against. And I kind of think that for maybe we had a decent first 15 minutes. It's kind of been, uh, something that Southampton has done over the past couple of, of matches where we, we start, I don't want to say strong, but we hold on to the ball. We pass the ball, we move the ball, but we don't score. And it seems like yeah. when that happens, whether the, the players lose confidence or whether the fans start to get agitated because the, the ball is not going in the net. And then slowly we seem to get pegged back and, and, and then, yeah. you know, the other team starts to come on to us. So what was there anything of note for you in that Swansea match? Well, this is just it. It was, it was a classic Southampton performance. I mean, we started off the game strong. We started with the possession and we started the game in the opening sort of five, ten minutes with a good chance. Shane Long managed to find his way between the lines and he made a good run behind the Swansea defence, but we failed to take our chance. Now, that ain't a criticism of Long because he did score our goal and he was one of our better players on the night. Right. But it feels like we just keep taking our foot off the gas again. You know, it, and it reminded me quite a bit of the match against Tottenham at home because we played very, very well in the first 15, 20 minutes. We looked lively. We looked full of ideas. We were creative and we, we made chances and we looked like, we looked like the, the team that was going to take a foothold of the game and it silenced the opposition supporters. It had them on 10 hooks and we looked like we could really push on. So why do we take the foot off the gas? Again, I don't get it. I think that we need to, we need to continue with the intensity and the pressure throughout games, because as soon as we take our foot off the gas, this is an unforgiving league and everyone now wants points. And you look at the teams below us, 
you look at how well they're fighting, you got to worry. And and you have to think if if we're picking up on this, then every other league or every other team that's going to play us knows that if you weather that first 10, 15 minutes, you know, you're going to you're going to be able to kind yeah. of take hold of the match and that that's unacceptable, you know? That's unacceptable for teams to come in and kind of yeah, I, I understand that. And it's frustrating. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think that yeah, that is the word for it. It's frustrating because when a team presses, when a team shows intensity and when it shows fight, the fans buy into it. The fans love it. You know, we we love to see our players fighting for every first ball, for every second ball. But when it when it's not continued, the the, the team loses its loses its edge. And as you said, if they can weather the first sort of 15 20 minutes, they can then feel as though they can take charge of the game for the next 70. And it's a really, really difficult situation. I don't expect us to be going up and down the pitch, up and down the pitch for the whole 90 minutes. That's impossible. You'd have to be at a ridiculous physical level to do that. Right. But at the end of the day, we're losing our fear factor. I don't think that teams come up against Southampton thinking, oh, I don't know how we're going to approach this game and I'm worried we're going to lose. I think that teams approach Southampton now thinking, hang on, this is a brilliant opportunity to get another three points. I think you're right. I think you're right about that. I think people are, are, are feeling confident when they come in to play us. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't. Exactly. And, and that's, that, that is frustrating because over the past couple of years, I don't think teams felt that way. I think everybody yeah, I agree. looked at us as one of those teams that were going to be tough to beat in what actually in most instances, save the bit the really big teams settle for a draw against us. Well, well, this is just it. Last, last season, we were capable of really pulling off some big results against the oppositions. And I, I appreciate that it's been a bit more difficult this season because of, you know, rotation and, you know, every, all, all of the reasons. But I, I don't I don't feel any confidence when we take on big teams. Even when we were against Liverpool and even when it was all in our favour in the second leg, I was thinking, it's OK, I'm not going to get my hopes up because this Southampton side, for me, is mentally weak. So I was thinking, okay, you know, we'll cave in soon. That little 15, 20 minute spell of pressure and chances that we have is going to fade away soon. And the opposition are going to hit us. That's my prediction for almost every game now. Yeah. So I, I don't know. We, we're losing that mental strength about us. Now, uh, moving on to the second half of that match, uh, any positives that you saw? Um, I noticed, you know, when Buffal came on, the game kind of seemed to change a little bit. Uh, he looked he looked pretty good. He looked lively. What about what about you? What did you see that was positive for the Saints maybe in the second half? Honestly, I, I can echo your thoughts and I can say that they're, they're probably there were only there there was only one positive and that was Sofiane Buffal. I thought that he came on and he completely changed the complexion of the game. You know, as soon as he came on, he looked lively. He looked up for it and he looked like he wanted to change the game. Whenever he got the ball, he wanted to carry it forward and he wanted to create something. And we just, we miss that. We miss the innovation on the ball. We look a little bit clueless in possession when we don't have a player like Buffal in the team. And it, it will it will result in over-reliance on him if we don't start creating chances all around the pitch. But, you know, as you said, Buffal, he, he was a positive from the game. And... It was difficult because, obviously, with a player like that, you want to be starting him week in, week out. But, of course, coming back from that um, knee injury and 
and obviously missing four weeks due to the African Cup of Nations and whatnot. You know, we've not. I don't think we've seen the best of him yet. But I think that that is an exciting. That's an exciting thought because we've seen what he's capable of with the goals against Sunderland and Middlesbrough, and the cameo appearance against Swansea. And the stat that told the story was on the night he made the most take-ons in the Premier League, and that was a total of seven. And he had half an hour. Yeah, he was. You know, he was just. He was electric and at the ground, feeling a bit glum. You see him warming up and you think, you know, bring him on. He's got to come on because if there's a hope of getting back into this game, it's him. And I think that that's the kind of player he is. He's going to take some time to adjust, but he has got that ability to turn a game on its head. And it's a shame that we couldn't really make the most of the creativity. And it was a really, really disappointing game against Swansea and one in which I thought was, you know, he was the only positive. Yeah. Now, were you able? Were you at the match, or no? Yes, I was. Yeah, you were. Yeah, oh, I was. oh, okay. Um, what 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 was the the Saints fans' reactions when you saw him warming up? What was there some talk of 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 this is this guy can change the game or because I was only listening on the radio because it happens to be during the middle of my workday and that you know that causes issues. <laughs> yeah, there, there were um there were plenty of calls for Paul Bufal to came on to come on. Sorry, and and when and when he was warming up. To be fair, there wasn't really too much recognition from the Saints fans. I think that was purely because we were all on tenterhooks watching the game and worried about Swansea inevitably scoring. Um, but it, you know, we we all we all knew that something needed to change and we needed a bit of a spark. And Buffal came on and provided that. Do do we need to talk about the the two Swansea goals, or are we we just kind of leave them where they're at and move on? We'll, we'll leave them again at a lack of focus because that's just been apparent for half of the goals conceded this season, to be honest. Well, the, the news we have to talk about after that isn't, isn't as exciting either. So, um, you know, yesterday, uh, West Ham, not, 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 the, not, not the return I wanted Font to get at St. Mary's. You know, I would have, not that I want to see him, I don't want to see him injured or anything like that, but I would have loved to just have him come back to St. Mary's and have his side just get beat. I don't care if it's one nothing. I don't care if it's, you know, three nil or whatever, but I would have preferred just to say like, Hey, we're still here. This is what you left. And that's what you went to. And that just didn't happen. No, you, you know, you're, you're right. And of course, prior to the match, it was, it was, you know, the build up was about Fonte. It was about his return to the club. And, you know, personally, I respect him very, very much for what he's done in the last sort of six and a half years at the club. But obviously the way he left has left a sour taste in, in everyone's mouths. And it's a shame. But in all honesty, he had a good game. He, he, you know, he was good against us. I think that although he didn't have a lot to do, he did well. And West Ham as a collective were a lot better than us. I think that, OK, we might have had more possession and we might have had more chances or whatever. I think that West Ham worked as a team. They communicated well. They showed the urgency to get forward and we didn't. And I think that was the difference on the day. They, they fought for every ball. They wanted it more than us. And again, this is what's losing us points this season. Absolutely. Um, the, the TV commentators were pointing out that Carroll tended to kind of play off to the side and kind of draw the fullback. And so he was getting up, he was getting headers against the fullbacks uh, more so than maybe against Yoshida or Stevens. But I, I wish we could have taken him out of the game a little bit more. And I, I think that, I think that, that again, we're back to the defense isn't isn't strong enough, and I think that we we saw that again yesterday. I I, I can't put all the blame on the defense for for the opening goal or or the uh, the second goal even. Um, I felt like our our midfield to an extent kind of let let our, uh, 
our defense and, and Fraser Forrester down just a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And in fact, to be fair, I didn't think the defense was particularly bad. I think that Yoshida probably, he probably stitched up Stevens a little bit with the first goal and the positioning. But why was nobody closing the man on the outside of the box down? Absolutely. Why was why was no one there? I mean, at the end of the day, it was very, very clear what West Ham's game plan was to be. It was feed Carroll. You know, feed off of Carroll, let him use his strength, let him put himself about and let him get into good positions. Firstly, Stevens wasn't goal side of him when he scored. And he, he, he Carroll found the space and it was, it was a very, very basic finish. Fraser Forster, he's not imposing at all this season. I think that when strikers come up against him in a one-on-one situation or or in the air or anything, I think they just feel more confident out of the two to save the shot or to score the shot. But ultimately, for me, the, the blame, it falls on the midfield. I felt that all three of Romeo, Prowse and Davis were very, very poor on the day. Um, I was quite surprised to see Prowse return to the side straight away. I thought that Klazi or Hoiberg might have played, given the fact that um, Hoiberg in particular uh, played no played no part in the game against Swansea. So that's right. two games now he's been an unused substitute. But for me, for the first goal, and in fact the second goal, no one at all was closing down the man on the edge of the box. And you're asking for trouble when you do that. What about the free kick? What would you uh, what'd you make of that? Well, it was, it was a silly free kick to give away in the first place. In a position... It's so, so hard and it's so frustrating to talk about because it's just schoolboy stuff. It really is basic. And what got me was the fact that we know that West Ham are going to be dangerous from set pieces, whether that be Snodgrass over it to take a shot or whether that be the fact that they have got some physical players in the box. Right. We know that they're going to be dangerous from set pieces. But it wasn't even a bad... It wasn't even a very good ball in. It was just totally silly it was a poor goal to concede the, the ball's come in at walking pace and I think it was a it was a lack of communication between Stephen Davis and Fraser Forster which is ironic because they were the two um, the two oldest players in the team the two senior players in the team one of which was captain and there was a lack of communication between them both Fraser Forster was rooted to the spot Stephen Davis hung out a lazy leg and when you don't put in 100% and you keep and you don't keep the focus there and you don't talk to each other, that's exactly what will happen. And I think that the lack of communication was apparent throughout the whole game. I felt as though, as a trio, Stevens, Yoshida and Forster, they struggled to talk to each other, and they struggled to understand what each other wanted. And it, it was quite clear that Stevens and Yoshida were quite wide as central defenders. Yes, And they, yes. They, 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 I don't know, they just, whether that was to counter Carroll as he kept coming out was, I'm not so sure. But I just felt as though there was a breakdown in communication, and that was a key part of our loss. Yeah, and you need your goalkeeper, even if he's not the captain. You need him to be directing traffic because he has the entire field. You know, every, he can see every other player on the pitch. Yeah, exactly. I agree, and you know, it just relates back to what I said. I don't see Forster as an imposing goalkeeper now. I think that this season, I'm going to say it. I think he's been. I think he's been awful. I've not seen him. I've not. I'm not sure I've seen him have a single good performance like make an outstanding save even in that game against Liverpool where he clawed it off the line that came from him deciding to parry a shot instead of catch it right I, I, I don't know something's gone on with him and I think that in all honesty if he is fit and available to play I would definitely give Hassan a start against Sunderland but then again 
it leads to a whole new debacle as to why he wasn't even on the bench and Stuart Taylor was on the bench against West Ham. Right. Is Hassan fit? I don't know. It's difficult to say. Yeah, we will have to see. Uh, and just last year, in you know, talked about it before on, on previous episodes. You know, Forster had some fantastic games. Yeah, and, yeah, and, exactly. He did. And and now, even with with Joe Hart out of the Premier League, this should have been the time for him to go. Like, I that, that's that number one shirt for England is mine. I need to go get it. And he's definitely not making a claim for that shirt at all. No, no, you're right. I think that. That's what's. I don't know. It's very, very difficult because, as you said, he had a, he had a wonderful opportunity this season to really to really make that number one shirt his own, and that was only made better with um you know the unfortunate injuries to Jack Butland of Stoke. So, what, what has gone on with Forster? Is it a complacency? Is he carrying an injury? Because he always walks a little bit like he's being restricted, and his reflexes have been dire this season. So something has gone on with Forster. I'm really not sure. I don't know if he's happy or not. But um, I don't know. It's got to change. Because as you said, he is the goalkeeper. And he's got to be the one, you know, barking these orders at his defence. And he just doesn't do that. He, he doesn't command his area. He barely comes off of his line. He's slowed down to his corners. And he's just got to improve, as, as a lot of the squad have. All right. Looking ahead to Sunderland. Uh, you, did you see what they were able to do uh, against Palace? <laughs> they, yeah, they, they, they actually scored four goals, which is something that I don't recall us doing this season. Yeah, I looked back at the, the the replay, and they looked to be four different types of goals. It seems like they're just they just scored however they wanted. We we have to win. <laughs> I mean, I, th- yeah, it's... yeah, that is it. The thing is, the thing is, I I approached Swansea away, West Ham at home, and Sunderland away for a club of our sort of stature and position and of our our quality within the squad, regardless of our defensive issues, I see nine points there. Now, the fact that we can only come out of it with three at a maximum is very, very, very underwhelming. And it's been like that for a lot of the season. We've dropped points against teams we should be comfortably sweeping aside. Of course, there's no easy game in the Premier League, but you've got to pick up the points against the teams around you. And we just haven't been doing that this season at all, really. And with the Sunderland game, I can't believe I'm saying it, but it could be a decider as to sort of how how the remainder of the season is going to be for us. Is it going to be a relegation battle? Is it just going to be a bit of mid mid table obscurity and just to try and just to try and go and win the EFL Cup or not? But I think that the Sunderland game is going to be very very telling because again, this time there can be no excuses. It's not, as, it's not as if we've had a midweek game. We've had a week's rest. Claude Puel has had time to find his game plan, work out how he's going to beat Sunderland. So there's no excuses for Sunderland. We have to beat them. Yeah, I agree. We did get a few questions from some of the Believe Your Followers on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you, you want to hear some? Yeah, for sure. Go for it. So uh, uh, St. Rise asked, question for Luke is, is Wembley the only thing keeping Puel in a job at Southampton FC? It's it's a it's a very difficult question. I think that if if you if you take Wembley away from him, it, it's been it's been awful. If I'm honest, I mean we're we're twelfth thirteenth in the league. We're only six or seven points away from relegation zone, and you know the Europa League was a disaster for us. So. He's not really got a lot to show for himself apart from that Wembley, that Wembley final, that trip to Wembley, because it is coveted and it's so important to us. But 
I don't know. The thing is, Les Reed's come out and he said that Claude Puel hasn't had a lot of coaching time, largely down to the fact that, you know, with the rotation that's been necessary at times and down to the down to the congestion in the fixture schedule, it's been about recovery instead of coaching. But equally, he's the person that picks the teams. He's the person that tactically sets them out to play this kind of football, which has been largely like very, very negative. And I don't really think that he's... I don't think that he's living up to the expectations that we should have of a manager. I'm not saying that we should be finishing, you know, at, at, at the heights that we did last season or even the season before in the sixth or seventh, but we need to be in the top sort of top nine, top eight, and we need to be sort of performing to the ability that we are capable of. And I appreciate that it is a collective effort. It's not just Puel. It is the board, the fans, the players, and of course the manager. It's not been as good as it has in previous years. But for me, Puel isn't doing enough. And I think that Reese is right in what he says that, you know, if Puel didn't have Wembley to fall back on, I don't think he'd be in the job, no. If I'm honest, I, I've said in the past that I, I I kind of agree with the not having time to coach and implement the new system and stuff like that. But it's getting now to the point where we're going to see over the next month, do things turn around or not? And if it if they don't i can't imagine uh the fans staying behind Puel and 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 i want to because i want to see us get better and sometimes i think that you know constant turnover in managers and stuff like that isn't the best thing but there's a lot that needs to improve if he's going to be the man that 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 sticks around yeah i i agree with you i think that you know i, I want to get behind him and I, I want to back him and that is what i will do I will back the manager because he's representing our club and I'll do that with anyone that is that is doing that. But that doesn't mean that criticism isn't isn't warranted um or unwarranted. Right, right. Because because he he's not he's not been good enough. You know, the the tactics have been boring. I appreciate, you know, as it's been said about the coaching time, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we have to be conservative in every single game. And the results, you know, against the likes of, you know, your, your Burnleys, your Crystal Palaces, even your West Ham at home, your Swansea away, they're games we should be winning. And it's not, it's, it's really not good enough. We'll do one more question. Sam uh, at SFC Sam underscore says, uh, what would be your thinking manager or player wise if we lose to Sunderland and Arsenal? And that, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but that Arsenal game is going to get moved sometime later, right? Because that, is it, does it yeah, conflict yeah, with I, the cup final? Yeah, it, it will be moved. Um, our next league games are obviously Sunderland on Saturday and then on the 4th of March, we've got Watford away. So even in that sense, that's another two games I expect us to win. So, you know, we'll we'll fast forward on to this. If we don't get six points out of that, I see no real way in which the manager can, can stay without us seriously considering relegation because I don't think that we can make a decision based on one game. We can't say if we lose at Wembley, we sack Puel, and we can't say if we win at Wembley, we keep Puel. I don't think that that's fair on anyone, if I'm honest. I don't think that we can base that off one game. I think that would be knee-jerk. However, right. if we do, if we are looking to sack him, say, if we lose the games against, what, Sunderland and Watford, then let's do it as soon as possible. But if if we're not, then you've got to stick with him for the season. Because I don't want us to be going in and replacing a manager with 10 games left. 
because that can be extremely counterproductive and you know it could end badly yeah absolutely absolutely i don't know do do we have anything else you'd like to talk about no i think we've, we've covered pretty much everything there do appreciate you uh stopping by and uh you know i appreciate you, you chatting with me oh, my pleasure thank you so much for joining us luke once again that's luke osman you can follow him on twitter at luke osman rs he's the co-editor of reed southampton you can follow them on twitter at reed southampton and in addition to that luke also hosts the red and white podcast so you can follow that on twitter at red and white pc they released their first episode yesterday so be sure to take a look uh that will pretty much do it for this episode of the southampton delivery podcast a podcast dedicated to the southampton football club and all of the sfc fans i'd like to thank you all for joining us i hope that you enjoyed the show and i hope that this has helped you kind of work through uh what is going on with uh the football team that we all love so much so we'll be back next week uh, to be sure you don't miss that episode, be sure to subscribe to our feed in iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can always get in touch with us at SFC Delivery on Twitter. That's at SFC D-E-L-L underscore I-V-E-R-Y. If you want to submit questions for the show, use the hashtag SFC Del. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, remember that together, we march on. quick shout out to the we are southampton page on instagram for unique pre and post match edits goal of the month polls competitions and more be sure to check out we are southampton on instagram and a special thanks to matt for designing the logo for the southampton delivery podcast